Now, many of you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Angel and I, my wife, we went over to Rochester, Minnesota to the Brian Convention, and uh, we spoke at the Brian Convention, and that went well, and then when we were done, we hopped on our motorcycles, and we rode around a little lake called Lake Superior. There's a reason they call it Superior. It's about 1,600 miles around there. So no offense, Nebraska, but every lake we have is a mud puddle, okay? Now, one of the privileges that we had as we were on that trip was to worship with believers in different parts of the country and even up into Canada. A couple of weeks ago, we were in a little church, about 30 people, in Wawa, Canada. And it was amazing to see people that had a love for the Lord. And then we were in Laval, Wisconsin, a little church, about 70, 75 people. And it was amazing that, that there was all these different styles of worship. There was gospel, there were hymns, there was a few praise choruses. But here's the thing, it, it wasn't about the style of worship. It was about the one that we worshiped. And you know, sometimes... We can be prideful in the church, and we can start to think that we've arrived based on the size of our church. It's not the size of the church. It's the heart of the worshiper. And how awesome to be with men and women who just love Jesus. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, do you realize how big your family of faith is? And, and are you willing to embrace that? Are you you're going to have this critical spirit and walk in and be like, well, I'm the pastor of this whatever church, or they, they're not as good as we are. We're not competing with other Christians. We're complimenting. And how awesome for me to be able to go and sit and have a man of God speak into my life from the Word of God. It was, it was so refreshing to see other believers. We had the joy of chasing each other around on motorcycles for a little over 2,000 miles. Now, why do I share that? Because if we say that these relationships matter, then we've got to start investing in them, especially in the relationships that matter most. Your marriage, this person that you said, I want to do life with you till death do us part. Let me ask you the question, are you taking time to invest in that relationship? People will tell me this all the time. I think I fell out of love. Let me tell you something about love. Love is not a bed that we fall into and fall out of. Love is something that we invest in. Love is something that we kindle. And many times the reason that the flame goes out is because we're not putting fuel on that fire. And I'm going to tell you, there's always going to be all of these pressures in your life. And you have to push back and you have to take the time to invest in what matters most. Now, the very last night of the trip, and I love God's timing. When in reality, it no longer really mattered, our bikes got broken into and a bunch of stuff got stolen. And when I went out that next morning, I was reminded of the reality that the last sermon I preached was, thou shalt not steal. (laughs) There's at least one person who didn't hear that message. (laughs) You see, the first thought that came to my mind when I was going through trying to figure out what's there, what's not there, it's just stuff. Here's the thing about stuff. Stuff can either be replaced or gotten over. 
There are things in your home that you haven't used for five years. If someone stole it, in reality, you could get over it because you haven't even been using it. There's other things that matter to you, but you could replace those. Here was the question that came to my mind. What if, instead of the bikes being broken into, what if we'd had a tire blow out? What if what I had lost was my wife? And yet, how many of us are putting the priority on our possessions today instead of people? And you see, what you and I are going to discover as we go back into God's Word, into our series in the Ten Commandments, Relationship, Not Rules, is it's people that we got to invest in, not possessions. Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. The ninth command, Exodus twenty sixteen. you must not testify falsely against your neighbor. Now, what God's saying here is, I want you to invest truth into people, not trash. What happens when you and I trash talk people instead of talking truth into people? We ruin relationships. And what we need to understand is this ninth command is not just for believers. It is for every single person on the planet. Why? Because when a society lets truth slip away, it is not long before that society itself is stripped away. You and I need to understand here that we as the adults of this society are the ones that set the model for truth and are the ones who are mouthing truth. And the next generation are watching us to see, and the question is, are we bearing truth? Are we talking truth, or are we just talking trash? Because sadly, what many of us are doing is we are teaching the next generation a second language, the language of lies. Now I want to do something that for many of you is going to be uncomfortable. And we bought into this belief today that we can't be uncomfortable in the church. Well, if you're a Christian, you're going to get uncomfortable. I'd like you to stand with me. And I'm going to invite the Honorable Judge Warden to come. And he has a question. So if you would stand and and listen to this question. Or affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you God. They're your witnesses, Pastor. Thank you for doing that, Judge Warden. It's amazing how serious it got all of a sudden, right? See, we read this, and then most of us, we just kind of skip over it. Yeah, it's no big deal. But what happened when we were confronted with that question? You see, there were some of us, we were ready to say, I, I do. For the next seven days, I want to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. There were some of us that were like, I don't know if I can do that. There were some of us that were saying, I don't know that I want to do that. You see, some of us in our mind were thinking, can we change it? I want to tell most of the truth most of the time or some of the truth some of the time. How serious are we about truth? 
Now, here's the question. If you think back to last week, in the last seven days, can you honestly say before God that you told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And if not, why? Why do we lie? Why do we bear a false witness? It's because for some of us, we care more about being liked, and we think that we can lie to be liked. Some of us want to be loved, and so we lie to be loved. Some of us, we don't want to deal with the consequences. We want to do what we want, even though we know it's sin, and we think we can just cover up sin with more sin, and so what do we do? We lie. And as you and I think about bearing a witness or a testimony, it will either be a testimony of truth or it will be a false testimony, false witness. And the first thing I want us to think about is the types of lies. You see, the first is the obvious lie. This is where you and I try to twist the truth to mean something that it doesn't. Here's what we need to understand. We don't twist the truth. What we twist is our relationships with each other. And some of us were twisted up in our relationships today because we're not allowing truth to be our talk, to be the anchor that we come back to. But you see, we don't just get twisted up in our relationships with one another. It also affects our relationship with God. Lincoln, at one time, as he was dealing with a stubborn, obstinate man, changed his, his thinking and the way that he went about it to, to get his point across to this man. And he said to him, suppose we were talking about a cow and I asked you, how many legs does a cow have? What would you say? And the man said, well, four, of course. And he said, that's right. Now, suppose we, we call the tail of the cow a leg as well. Now, how many legs does the cow have? And the man says, well, five. And Lincoln says, that's where you're wrong. No amount of calling a cow's tail a leg makes it a leg. And what we're doing today is we're saying, I want it to add up to five. This is what I want to arrive at, and so therefore I have to twist truth to get it to fit with my way of life. And that's what our whole society has done. And we're taking the truth of God's Word, and we're twisting it to fit our current lifestyle. Because the way that we want to live, our likes have become more important than our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the only thing that keeps a society from melting down are those few words, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You ever ask yourself the question, why has an ungodly world adopted biblical truth as its standard and its base for justice. It's because of this. When people lie, people die. That's how serious it is. And when a judge is in a courtroom, he understands the seriousness of getting to the truth. And so on the front end, we ask people, will you commit to telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Isn't it interesting? Why can't we just say, will you tell the truth? Because we know that people are what? They're looking for a loophole. And many of our loopholes are lies. We're trying to find a, a workaround to the will and the way of God. 
But you see, as that judge brings that up, he is reminding us that when we lie, people die. It affects relationship. It ruins relationship. It creates rifts in relationship. And here's the thing. It's not always a physical death. Sometimes people lie and people end up on death row and their life is forfeit because of a lie. But more often than not, it's not a physical death, but it is the death of freedom as people are imprisoned by that lie. Sometimes it is the death of relationship. As people are cut off from loved ones or there are rifts in relationships. Sometimes it it is reputations that get ruined and die. Sometimes it is justice and innocence that we kill. When people lie, people die. It brings forth death. Four young high school girls decided one fall day that they didn't want to go right to school. And so they went riding around in a car. They didn't do anything really bad. They just didn't do what they were called to do, supposed to do. They didn't go to school. And after a little while, they decided to show up to class, and they walked in, and, and they knew that they'd be in trouble. And so one of the girls looked at the teacher, and she said, we had a flat tire. And the teacher said, man, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Now, that was a lie. She didn't want to face the consequences of, I want to do what I want, and I don't want to get punished. And the teacher said, well, I'm really sorry that happened to you girls. Now, here's the thing. You missed a quiz this morning, and right now you need to make up that quiz. And so I want you to go into the classroom, and I want you each to pick a corner of the classroom, no talking during the quiz, and then the teacher handed them each a blank piece of paper and said, girls, there's one question on the quiz, and here's the question, which tire was flat? Starting to get multiple choice now, right? You're going to put A, B, C, D. How do we communicate that without making it obvious? You see, that teacher understood something. That there are more lessons to life than just math and arithmetic. That some of the greatest lessons that our teachers teach are called life lessons. And I guarantee you, those girls learned probably the greatest lesson they could ever learn that day. Why? Because a teacher was willing to be wise and a teacher was willing to bring the truth to light. Do you realize we just started a new school year? There's a whole bunch of teachers that are excited and a handful of students, right? That's how it is every year. But how many of us recognize that the teachers in our schools are investing in the lives of our kids To teach them not just math and arithmetic and and reading and all those kinds of things, but to invest into them these life lessons so that they can grow up to become the next generation that takes the helm and steadies the ship and steers the course so that we can have politicians who start to tell the truth and, and doctors and lawyers who start to tell the truth and preachers who tell the truth. But how many of us as parents are teaming with our teachers? You see, something I've observed in the last five years is this shift in parental mentality. Where the moment that something happens that our kids don't like, our kids come home and they complain about the teacher, and and, and we immediately, what? We go after the teacher. Can I ask you to do something, parents, this year? Would you pray for your teachers? Would you please partner with your teachers? Can I ask you a question? Why did they get into teaching? Same reason preachers did, right? To make a lot of money. 
It's because we love people. And here's the thing. Teachers, love your kids. And my encouragement to you as a parent is then love the people who love your kids. Now, I want to stop the sermon for a moment. And I want to pray for our teachers as we start this school year. Father, what a privilege to invest in the lives of our youth. And we just want to lift up our teachers, our administrators, our principals, our schools, those who are day after day investing in our kids. And sometimes they spend more time with our kids than we do as the parents. God, would you help us to speak words of encouragement into their lives? Would you help us to partner with them? Would you help us to be careful not to just put them down? God, would you protect the heart of teachers who are in it because they love people and the very people they're trying to love don't love back? Would you protect their reputations? God, would you have their back this year and help us to have their back? For we pray these things in your name. Amen. The first type of lies is the obvious lie. The second is the libel. This is what a court of law would would turn around and say is malicious intent. This is technically not a lie, but what it is is using truth to hurt people instead of to help them. Now, you and I need to understand that truth is not to break people or bully people. Truth is to build into people. And many of us want to use truth today to belittle instead of to build. How are you using truth? Are you using truth in a right way, a righteous way, or in a wrong way? Now, I want to share with you a somewhat humorous story to help understand what this looks like when we use truth to trash people, to hurt people. The editor of a small-town newspaper was constantly being accused of lying. And so he vowed to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in his next paper. And here's what he wrote. In the next issue, married Miss Sylvia Rhodes and James Collins last Saturday at the Baptist Parsonage by the Reverend J. Gordon. The bride is a very ordinary town girl who doesn't know any more about cooking than a jackrabbit. She's never helped her mother more than three days in her entire life. She is not a beauty by any means and has the gait of a duck. It means when she walks, she waddles. The groom is an up-to-date loafer. He's been living off the folks at home all of his life and is now worth nothing. It will be a hard life. What? I'm just telling the truth. You ever been there? And many of us use that excuse as believe. I'm just telling the truth. I'm just telling it the way it is, right? And what we're doing is we're using truth to trash people instead of to take care of people and to build into people. The next is slander. This is where we drag people's name through the mud to either make them look bad or to make us look good. This is the game of American politics today. Do you understand how serious God is about the sin of slander? He says this, and we'll discover later in Deuteronomy 19, that that you and I can't bring a charge against someone unless there are two or three witnesses. And yet, what happens all the time? And this is at the highest offices, people that are adults, and what we're teaching our kids is it's okay to trash somebody to make yourself look good. That's the kind of leader I want. No, it's not. 
And yet we're at a place today where what do we say? Well, it's the lesser of two evils. Is that the best we have? How did we get to that point? And we want to blame politics, but can I tell you, maybe the problem is parenting. That we're teaching this second language of lies. That it's okay to trash people and their reputations. The next is exaggeration. This is probably the most common form of lie because we don't even really see it as a lie. This is where, literally, when we went on that fishing trip, the fish was this big, right? But somehow, miraculously, by the time we get home, the people who weren't on the trip, now the fish is this big. Because everybody knows when you pull it out of the water, it swells up, right? It's a miracle. Now, why do we exaggerate? Because we want to look good. Because we've bought into the idea is if I can embellish the story and look better than somebody else, people are going to like me and love me. And we see it as absolute innocent. It's it's not hurting anybody to tell them the fish got bigger when it really didn't. I'm just exaggerating. What we're doing is we're not just stretching the truth. We are starting to stretch and tear at the very fabric that holds relationships together. And what happens is it's not long before the very people around us will make the statement, take everything that he or she says with a grain of salt because you can't trust them. Why? Because we have stretched the truth. And what we're doing is we're stretching our relationships and instead of looking cool, People start saying, you can't trust that person. And the very thing that we wanted goes away. And it can happen in small ways. We go on that hunting trip and and we shoot a small buck, so post it. It, At least you shot something. But you know what we do? We we position the camera in such a way and everything to to make it bigger than it really seems. Why? Because we want to impress people. We are more concerned in our country today of impressing people than allowing God to impress on us. The last is kind of a strange one. It's the innuendo or silence. An innuendo is when we say things like, well, I'd like to say something about so-and-so, but I promised I wouldn't say anything. What are we doing? We're leading people to believe something. But we've never actually spoken truth. Now it comes to silence. And many of us look at it and we're like, well, at least I didn't tell a lie. Yeah, but you didn't speak up for the truth. And that has become the biggest problem in the church in America today. Do you realize that the reason, most of the reason why Hitler was able to do all of the atrocities in Nazi Germany was because people didn't speak up? They were silent. And many times it was because of fear. Pro-life activist Penny Lee tells of a time after she got done sharing. An old gentleman came up to her and said, I want to tell you a story. True story. He said, when I was a kid, I was growing up in Nazi Germany and I went to church every Sunday with my family. And one Sunday as we were singing... We heard the train whistle, and the train tracks went just by our church. 
And we heard the whistle of the train, and then as the train started to go by the church, we could hear the, the cries of the Jews who had been loaded into there as cattle being led to the slaughter. And it sickened us to our stomach, but we didn't say anything. And the next Sunday, as we heard the train coming, we heard the train whistle, and the choir director said to the church, let's sing a little louder. And we thought we could drown out what was really going on in the world. And, and if one of those cries came through, we would just sing a little louder. And he said, we sung as loud as we could. But here's the thing. No matter how loud I sang as a child, when I close my eyes at night, I still hear the train whistle and I hear the cries of the people. And you know what we say in, 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 in America today? Boy, I'm glad I don't grow up in a nation like that. People aren't willing to speak up for atrocity. Can I ask you how many babies have we aborted in this nation? 40 million. We look at the atrocities of Nazi Germany of 6 million lives that were exterminated and and we are horrified. And yet in our own nation, we don't speak up for the truth. We're just silent in the church. Let's just sing a little louder because this is what's going on right outside the walls of our church. And what we want to do today is we want to buy into the belief that we can just change things, that that we can twist the truth. Let me tell you something. When you abort a baby, that is not a woman's choice. That's called taking a life. And we've got to love people who are being put into those situations who are not told the truth. But it is time for us as a church to stop being silent. If we don't speak the truth, who will? Do you expect the society that is controlled by Satan to suddenly rise up and speak the truth? No. They're going to speak the lies. The lies that bring death. A couple of months ago, I had a professor of mine. I went to a Christian college, and and he had been posting a few things on Facebook that I was like, man, that's just not biblical. And one of the things that he was talking about one day was, was the, his reasoning for removing guns in this country. Now, I'm not into the gun debate, but his whole reasoning was this, because 5,000 lives are lost every year, and that's unacceptable. And I private messaged him, and I said, let me ask you a question. Based on that logic, are you against abortion? You know what he said? That's an old issue. That's already been decided by the courts. We need to move on. Let's just sing a little louder. You see, you and I need to understand the seriousness of silence. And there is a time to be silent. But there is a time to speak up. And most of us, we're not being silent when we need to, and we're not speaking up when we need to. We're getting that mixed up today. You see, it's here that we come to the tragedy of what really happens when you and I bear a false witness. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. And it's here in Deuteronomy 19, 15 that you and I discover how serious God is about slander. You must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness comes forward and accuses someone of a crime, 
then both the accuser and the accused must appear before the Lord. By coming into the priests and the judges in the office at that time, and the judges must investigate the case thoroughly, and if the accuser has brought false charges against his fellow Israelite, you must impose on the accuser the sentence he intended for the other person. In this way, you will purge such evil from among you, then the rest of the people hear about it and will be afraid to do such an evil thing. Now, do you notice what God is saying here? You and I can't just run our mouth and ruin people's reputations. And there are times where our feelings get hurt, but they are not the voice of God. And we can't just go to Facebook and make our post. That's not biblical. And yet what many of us are doing today is we're just stating something like it's fact and trying to get everybody on our side. That's not looking for witnesses. That's looking for people who are willing to go to war for you and win. And what God says here is is don't just believe things. There's got to be some reliable, godly witnesses who are going to testify to what? Truth. Now, you notice how serious God is here because what does he say? If the person is just trying to hurt, it's slander then the very hurt that they intend needs to come back to them. If their intent was to imprison that person, they need to be imprisoned. Why? Because that heart is motivated by an evil desire. And you notice what God calls it here? Evil. And he says to you and I, we are to purge that out. We are to to get rid of that. Why would you cut that out? Because if you have a cancer in one area of the body and you don't deal with it, what happens to the rest of the body? You see, I don't know that we're really serious about lies today in our life. God is the father of all truth, and Satan is the father of lies. That's what Scripture tells us. And so the question that we've got to ask ourselves today, is my talk, the lips, the words that come off of my mouth, are they the words of the Lord, truth, or the words of Lucifer? Now, we don't tend to think of it that way, but if... if Satan is the father of all lies, and we are speaking lies. Whose language are we speaking? We are speaking on behalf of Satan. How much of your words and your works are for the Savior, and how much are for Satan? And I think for you and I to fully understand what God's saying here, we need to look at at the word lies, L-I-E-S, and we need an acronym for that. And it's this, living and investing in evil and Satan. Let me ask you a question. Do you, as you claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ, do you want to spend your life living for and investing in evil and Satan? And I think the vast majority of us will say, absolutely not, then stop lying. Because you are speaking the language of the enemy. You see, it's here that you and I need to understand that rather than having a false testimonial witness, that we need to have a witness for freedom and truth. So what do you do if you struggle with lying lips? If you struggle to tell the truth with your tongue? Turn with me to Ephesians 
chapter 4, verse 25. Ephesians 4, 25 says this, So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all part of the same body. Do you see the reason that it is given there? It's a relational reason. Parents, please stop telling your kids the reason we don't lie is it's a rule. Okay? Start telling them what God tells you. The reason we don't lie is it ruins relationship. It revolves around relationship. And the most important thing is the relationship that we have with Jesus, the relationship that we have with one another, and lies sever those relationships. But you notice here there is a replacing principle that God talks about. And most of us today have substituted that for a removing principle. And the removing principle that we want to focus on is we just need to get rid of the lies. That's called removing. But you notice what God says here? I want you to replace. Because what does he say? Stop telling lies. Replace it with the truth. Let's say for a moment that this container represents your life. And in here are are two things. There's water and air. And let's say that the water represents the water of God's word, truth. And let's say that the air represents the lies that we've been listening to and living. How would we get rid of the lies? Here's what most of us are doing today. I'm just going to remove them. I'm going to get rid of the air. You see the damage that I'm already doing? And many of us are damaging ourselves or damaging our kids because we're trying to build a life on just a removing principle instead of a replacing principle. Here's what we need to do. We need to take the truth of God's Word, the water of God's Word. We need to start pouring it into our lives because what would happen to the air if I filled this container with water? It would replace it, right? It would displace it. So let me ask you this question. How full of God's truth is your life? Have you left any area of your life open to where it is empty or void of truth to where lies can take root? Do you know how many of us today are listening to the lies of the enemy? You're not good enough. Really? The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you. And you're not good enough? No one loves you. I'd beg to differ. Look at the cross. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of this universe loves you. But we're listening to these lies, right? And you want to know how to get rid of the lies in your life? Start taking the truth of God's word and pouring it into your life. Build your life on the rock of the word of God. Not on the sands of the world that shift and one moment they say this, the next moment they say that. Because parents, here's the reality. If you and I don't deal with the lies in our life, they will dictate how we live. They will dictate how we parent. And most of the time, what we'll do is we'll pass on those generational lies and those generational sins to our kids. I've watched families where there is a generational lie that just gets propagated over and over and over. And I think, man, if we would just pour the truth of God's word into that, it would be gone. But you see, 
You and I living based on the truth doesn't just allow us to be upright, truthful people in a perverse generation. It also restores relationships. And I think every one of us can say at some point in our life, and maybe right now, we have a relational rift. We know what it is to have these relationships that get torn apart. And here in a moment, we're going to look at Matthew 18, this this godly principle for how you and I deal with relational rifts. But it starts with us talking to each other and actually being willing to deal with the elephant in the room. And the reason that we don't do this is because in the American church, most of us care more about our comfort than we do about obeying Jesus Christ. And having these hard conversations is not comfortable, and so we would rather have a relational rift at a distance than be uncomfortable. And the place that we're at today is we're like, yeah, I know I've got these broken relationships with people, but it's just the way it is. As long as that's over there and I don't have to deal with them, but maybe one or two times a year at Thanksgiving or Christmas or something like that, I'm okay with it. Can I ask you, do you think Jesus is okay with that? No, because Jesus cares about what? He cares about relationships. And there are some of us today that that we kid ourselves into believing that that we can turn these hard conversations of dealing with sin in our lives and the lives of other people into comfortable things. Let me tell you, there's a reason they call it a hard conversation. It ain't easy. And when you and I try to come at it and we're like, well, I'm uncomfortable and so I'm going to make it comfortable... Comfort still becomes the thing that's driving our life. And so we sugarcoat things and we don't really say what needs to be said and we really don't deal with the issues. And we skirt around. Now, there are some people who, instead of being avoiders of conflict, are conflict creators. And they love drama. They live for drama and, and, and they love drama. And these are the people who most of the time, like on Facebook, social media, are like, I hate drama. They'll always post stuff like that, and yet I'm always asking the question, well, why are you living in it? It's because you've allowed your life to become chaotic, and you don't know how to live unless there's chaos. And so you create chaos in people's lives, because even though you don't necessarily like it, you're okay with living with it. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. God's principles for restoring Broken relationships because of sin. Matthew 18, 15. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. Now, do you notice what it says here? If they sin against you, they may disagree with you and hurt your feelings, but is that sin? If it's not sin, and they haven't sinned, then you don't need to try to get them to repent. Because there's nothing to repent of. And many of us today, we're so focused on our feelings that we're running around and we're trying to implement a principle that has absolutely nothing to do with sin. Now notice what it says. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything that you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat the person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. What's the first principle? Talk. How? Face-to-face, not Facebook. 
Okay, this is a principle where you and I don't just post something publicly. This is a private conversation. Let me ask you, are you being confidential or are you being careless in how you're having these talks? The problem is most of us today in the church, we want to talk about people instead of talking to people. Do you think that running your mouth is going to restore the relationship or create a greater rift? And many of us, what we're doing is we see this sin issue in this person's life, and so what we do to combat that is we sin too. That's not a solution. You sinning is not a solution. That person is not going to understand repentance if you just keep doing what they have done. Now, after we talk about it and they refuse to repent, what's the next step? You take some godly people with you. Why do I say godly people? Because you notice here two or three witnesses. Where does this idea that Jesus have of two or three witnesses? Well, God established that in Deuteronomy, right? Do you see the Old Testament blending over into the New Testament here? This is not an Old Testament principle we can throw away. There's two or three witnesses. This is prevalent for us today as Christians in the church. And notice that the goal of them is to be a witness. A witness to what? Your feelings? No, a witness to truth. And what most of us are doing today is we're not looking for witnesses. We're just looking for people who will go to war for us. And so we've already had this conversation and we've broken away from confidentiality because we've never really talked to the person. We just went to a bunch of people, got them on our side, and now we're going to go strong arm them back into the kingdom of God. That's not biblical. Now, what's the next step if they still don't respond when we take godly people? And by the way, who are the godly people you know in your life that you would have as witnesses? Do you have any godly people in your life that you call? You better have some godly people in your life that are going to tell you not what you want to hear, but what God wants you to hear. You see, the next step here is that you and I, after we talk and take, we're to tell. And tell who? The church. And this is where many of us get confused. Who specifically in the church do we tell? Well, the the next verse gives us the clue because when it comes to church discipline, that's the pastors, the elders of the church, the spiritual leaders of the church, right? So who are we going to go talk to? But most of us, what we do is we talk about this in our small group under the guise of prayer. It's called gossip, okay? That's not biblical. If it is to that point, then you're willing to take the time to go talk to the pastor, go talk to the elders, the leadership of your church. Notice now, if they still don't respond, what's the next step? And this is the hardest one of all for the American church. We're going to treat them as an unbeliever. Why would we treat them as an unbeliever? Can I ask you how they're acting? As an unbeliever. When you and I live an unrepentant life, we are living as an unbeliever. You can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself, but you are living. Your testimony is now one of a sinner, not a saint. And you and I need to understand here that the reason that we struggle with this in the American church is because in the American church, we have placed the value on the individual, not on the group. These are the very words of Jesus. And where does Christ place the the priority on the body, on the church, not on the individual. And so if he says to you and I, look, you got cancer in your hand and you got to cut that off or it's going to create cancer in the rest of your body, it's going to be painful. It's not going to be pretty. Again, we expect church discipline to be this really, it's, it's discipline, it's not fun, right? 
As a parent, discipline is not fun. That's why many of us as parents are avoiding it. What's happening to our nation? Got a bunch of unruly, undisciplined people because we won't discipline. We won't deal with biblical principles in people's lives. You see, the, the, the goal of this is that they would get to a place like the prodigal son of saying, I'm tired of living in the pig pen. This isn't what God has for me. I want to come home. I want to repent. Do you notice that the, 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 the prodigal son came up with a workaround? I'll no longer be called a son. I'll be a slave. I'll pay for this myself. I'll, I'll work it out. Here's one of the dangers that I've been watching happening in the American church. We want to talk about the love of God, which we should, and we want to talk about a God that restores, and we should. But here's what we've substituted today. We don't ever want to talk about repentance in the church. And there are people who are starting to believe that God can restore even if I don't repent. But can I ask you a question? Why did Jesus Christ die on the cross? And we can all say for sin, right? But what does the Bible say? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness, not some unrighteousness. First John 1 John 1.9. If, do you notice the word there? We confess our sins. If we come clean, if we own it, if we repent from it, if we turn away from it. But, but this idea that we can just continue in sin and God's going to bless me anyway is a false gospel. It is a heresy and it's starting to take root in believers' lives. Who do you think wants to plant that seed? Satan. Why? Because we don't need the Savior. We don't need the blood of Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, if you're at a place in your Christian walk where you don't think you need the blood of Jesus Christ, where you don't need to repent of sin, then you don't have church. You have a cult. You see, it's here that you and I discover the transforming power of truth. Do you notice what it says here? Truth will win them back. I love that. Do you believe that? Do you know what most of us do today? We're like, well, that person, they're never going to listen. So there's no point. In, are, are you the voice of truth? Is it based on your opinion and your feelings and your attitude towards it? No, it's based on a biblical principle. There are times in our lives you don't want to have these hard conversations. But I believe the power of truth can transform people's lives. But if I don't speak up, and I don't interject truth with love into that situation, there's probably not going to be transformation. You see, here's the problem. Most of us today in this Matthew 18 principle, we're making it about winning instead of winning them back. What's the difference? Winning's about me. Winning them back is about Jesus. You see, here's the truth about the fact that if I win, someone has to lose. And we're okay today in the church of, of disregarding a biblical principle because it's about my feelings and I want to win and I'm okay with me winning and them losing. I am not okay with relationships being ripped apart. And I'm okay with, with, with the hard conversations and, and things being difficult and, and having to say things and being uncomfortable and being called things and, and people coming after you because they don't want to repent or they don't want to deal with their issues because I believe that truth eventually will win out. And so I want to ask you, are you making it about winning people back or winning? Because it's not about winning people to your opinion or your side. It is about winning them back to Jesus. And nothing should break our heart more than to see people who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ walking away and heading down the rebellious path of ruin because they refuse to repent. You see... 
one of the places that we had the incredible privilege of stopping at on that motorcycle trip is a place called Split Rock Lighthouse. Beautiful, incredible, picturesque lighthouse. Exactly what you picture a lighthouse being. There's this craggy rock, and on the top, just perched up, there's this beautiful lighthouse. But what was the point of that lighthouse years ago? It was to shine light into the darkness. Why? Because Lake Superior is the largest lake in the world by surface area. 10% of all of the fresh water is in that lake. All of the fresh water in all of the world. There's as much water in that one lake as the rest of the four great lakes. It is a massive body of water. And there are huge ships that are sailing along. And years ago, in the midst of the storms of life, in the midst of the darkness, they weren't always sure, am I heading in the right direction? And what did the lighthouse do? It shone the light into the darkness so that they could see the way and they could say, look, I don't want to head aground and ruin my life and the lives of those on board. I am going to turn and my head away from the shore. You and I are called to be that lighthouse. And the problem is, it's not comfortable to be up there in the middle of Canada in the winter and it's not fun and it's isolated and it feels lonely and so it's just easier to let the light go out. But what happens when we let the light go out? People have no idea where they're at in life because we're not speakers of truth. Now, I don't know why, but someone decided there was this like beautiful shot of it and someone decided to put up a chain link fence. And there was this little ledge, and I thought, you know, if I just step up on that ledge, I could get above the chain link fence, and I could get a beautiful picture, which I did. But as I was getting down, I caught my riding jacket on the top of that fence, payback, and I, and I pulled a big old chunk out of it, like thread. And you know what I wanted to do with that thread? I kept picking at it, because we've all had that happen to a shirt, right? And, and as guys, here's how we think. I'll just pull a bunch out, wrap around my fence, and then break it off, and then I'll stop it, right? I'll, I'll, I'll ruin it. To make it better. You know what my wife kept saying to me? Stop picking at that. Leave it alone. We'll deal with it tonight. And that night we get to this hotel and my wife walks out to her motorcycle, opens up her saddlebag and pulls out this little sewing kit. And that's when you go, I know I married well. (laughs) And she takes this little needle And she starts to work that thread back through there. And when she got done, you couldn't even tell there was any damage. There was no damage. Now, can I ask you, why does it matter if there's thread in the clothes? What is holding your shirt together right now? It's the thread, right? And if we tear out that thread, what happens? We create a rift. Do you understand the thread that's holding your relationships together is the thread of trust? And there's going to be times where that gets snagged on the things of life. Don't pick at it. Don't don't buy into the belief you can just pull out truth and get rid of it and things will get better. Pull that truth back in. Allow truth to be woven into the very fabric of every relationship you have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for how you speak to our hearts. Would you help us to be a church that is light and salt, that brings truth into a a lost generation. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Let's be dismissed.